Hello, and welcome to the November and final edition of the Nutritionist Webinar 2016. I am Marianne Fezenden from Agricultural Modeling and Training Systems and serve as your English language host. These webinars provide access to technical seminars by internationally recognized speakers. The series presentations are held in English, Portuguese, and Spanish. Marcos Neves Pierre from Universidade Federal de Lavras will be hosting the Portuguese language presentation with Marcelo Hens Ramos from 3R Lab facilitating. Paula Torillo from Argentina is hosting the Spanish language webinar. There will be a post-presentation question and answer period during which time listeners can submit questions through me, Marcos, or Paula. A complete recording of archived webinars as well as a question and answer session for each will be available on the AMTS website. We are very pleased to have Dr. Marina or Nina von Kaiserlink joining us today as our presenter. We are happy that she was able to join us and will be doing our last webinar and we have a great lineup for next time. Dr. von Kaiserlink is a natural science and engineering research chair holder in animal welfare at the University of British Columbia located in Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada. Dr. von Kaiserlink is recognized internationally for her research on care and housing for farm animals particularly cattle. She completed her undergraduate in agricultural sciences at UBC, her master's at the University of Alberta, and her PhD in animal sciences at the University of British Columbia. Following completion of her PhD, she worked in agribusiness for six years before returning to academia as a postdoctoral fellow in animal behavior and welfare. She was appointed as an assistant professor in animal welfare program in 2002, promoted to associate professor in 2006, and achieved the highest rank of professor in 2010. Dr. Von Kaiserlink is an astonishingly productive scientist, having published over 180 refereed research publications during her career as a scientist. She is a much sought after speaker, traveling nationally and internationally in excess of 100,000 miles per year and also sits as a scientific advisor. Because of this work as an educator on farm animal care, the impact of her research can now be seen on farms around the world. Dr. Von Kaiserlink is the 2012 recipient of the Canadian Animal Industries Award in Extension and Public Service in recognition of her outstanding service to the animal industries of Canada in technology transfer, leadership, and education in animal production. She is also the 2013 recipient of the Award for Excellence in Dairy Science in recognition of outstanding research in dairy science and the 2013 recipient of the Animal Welfare Award for Outstanding Service in the area of cattle welfare. We are very pleased to have her and feel quite fortunate that she had the time to join us. Hi, Nina. How are you? I'm well. Thank you, Marianne, for the uh, for the nice introduction and also um, for asking me to give the talk. And it's a pleasure to do this for everybody, and I look forward to the discussion at the end. I just wanted to start out with telling you just a few sentences about our approach. Um, as you can see on the first slide, our, we strive for practical methods of improving the health and welfare of dairy cattle. 
This mandate comes um, in large part because it is farmers that actually pay for the, well, at least nearly 50% of our funding comes from farmers who, um, from across Canada, through the Dairy Farmers of Canada, through the BC Dairy Association, through Alberta Milk, and a number of other organizations. And it's really without their support that, um, without it, we, I wouldn't have a job. Um, and, but it also keeps us um, hopefully a little bit honest. So what I want to do today is um, at the end of, I want to talk to you about the dairy heifer calf. Um, some of this can also probably be translated to male calves, but let's focus on the, on the dairy heifer and primarily the milk-fed heifer. She is the future of the dairy. And I think, I mean, we all want to do well by these babies and there's a lot of things that we've done um, in terms of care and management that I think the more recent research is showing that maybe we need to reflect on some of those practices and sort of tweak a few things. At the end of my presentation, I'm hoping that I will have convinced you all that we absolutely need to feed more milk than the conventional 10% uh, body weight, which is about I think four quarts in the imperial system and about four liters in um, the metric system. We need to feed this milk via a nipple and I'll give you um, hopefully some good justification as to why these things are important. If we feed more milk, we also have to take a revisit weaning because weaning does, it does create some challenges with weaning, but we've done a bunch of research now to show that we can actually wean them quite well. We just need to be cognizant to the fact that it's a different system than feeding um, restricted amounts of milk. If we do all that, then I think we need to revisit forage. And I think hopefully at the end, I'll convince you that forage is important and it's important from sort of the first week of life. If we do all of that, then I think we need to look at, we, the whole idea of social housing becomes something that um, those, that opportunity is open to us. And I'm gonna try to show you some compelling evidence as to why this is important for the welfare of the baby calf herself, but also for the future of the dairy. Um, so first of all, thinking about the milk-fed calf, one of the things that we know is that, well, as you all know, dairy calves are mammals. They were, they're born, they were in nature, they would suckle from their mother, which means that they were suckling from a teat. And one of the things that we have historically done in, with the baby calf is we have not really taken that into consideration. We take them away from the mother, and we'll talk about that at the end a very little bit, but we put them in a hutch or some sort of individual housing, and for the most part, we still see bucket feeding as being quite popular. We did an experiment that we did in early 2001 where we actually looked at, you know, how long, how does a calf drink that milk? And, you know, a lot of farmers they spend, or their wives or the, the, the daughters, because it's often the, the um, kids or the, the wives that are looking after the baby calves, spend a bit of time teaching these calves how to drink milk out of a bucket, you know, get, getting the head down into the bucket. Once they learn how to do this, what you see is those cows put their head in the bucket and they go, and they drink it all up 
and we actually timed it, it takes about 44 seconds for them to drink that milk. And then if you were to watch them, what they do is they spend about six minutes sucking on whatever they can find. If, you know, in the bucket, the rim, and if there's a chain on the chain, on any place where they can try to suck. And God forbid if there's another calf in that pen, they suck on that other calf because it's a lot more, you know, an ear or a navel or a vulva is a whole lot more similar to a teat than a chain or a bucket. So our reaction to feeding calves, and this is all done, and most of this, you know, was done on when we were feeding about four quarts of milk a day, so two quarts in the morning and two quarts in the afternoon, we had this horrible thing called cross-sucking. So our answer to all that was to individually house, and I'll get back to that um, in a little bit. So we know that we have these what we call negative behavioral responses, namely this cross-sucking. So, uh, but when we look at calves that are given a lot more milk and we give them a teat, what we actually see is that they spend about 47 minutes of their day drinking milk and they typically spread this into about six to 10 milk meals a day. And others, um, Anne-Marie de Passier and her husband, Jeff Russian, did some work where they actually looked at teat feeding and looked at the different types of um, hormones in, in the calves. And what they showed was higher levels of insulin and higher levels of CCK, which are good for digestion, in teat-fed calves compared to bucket-fed calves. So What's really cool about this finding is that if I were to go and measure or monitor the feeding behavior, the drinking behavior of a baby calf sucking from its mum, what I would be able to show you is they spend about 45 minutes of the day sucking from their mum, and they divide that into about six to 10 milk meals a day. So we're able to mimic what the calf does in nature in this artificial system by just giving it access to more milk and also feeding that through a nipple. So one of the things that we are worried about is, you know, this whole idea, one of the things that we did for the longest time was we fed restricted amounts of milk because we want them to get onto starter because we can't really wean them from starter until they're eating a significant amount of four, uh, solid feed. And so we did that by restricting the amount of milk and hope that they would eat starter. So we actually questioned that. Um, and we had a postdoc, um, Mohammed Khan, who did some work um, with us, and he also did some work as a postdoc, uh, where he looked at comparing the feeding, two different types of feeding regimes. So in this next slide, you'll see calf age along the x-axis um, going from basically zero to, or four days to 49 days of age, and then milk intake along the y-axis. And he had two treatment groups. And these, for this purposes of this experiment, these are all individually housed calves. The red squares are conventionally fed calves. So those calves were fed 10% of body weight. So, you know, the calves, so that worked out to, you know, a 40 kilo calf to about four kilograms of milk per day. And he weighed these calves every week and then he adjusted the milk accordingly. 
The treatment group, which he calls a step down, were given twice that. So they were given 20% of body weight. And what he did is he had looked through the literature and found that you know, the baby calf, it really is not physiologically able to even think about digesting starter till uh, significant amounts of starter till it's about, let's say, 18 to 20 days of age. So he decided that why don't we feed lots and lots of milk in the first four weeks of life and then reduce that milk with the idea being if I reduce the milk, maybe they would increase starter at that time. And so what this is, is you can just see the milk feeding regime. So he fed 20% of body weight until 24 days of age. Then he slowly over one week, he reduced that by about 20, per, I think it was over five days, over 20% um, over, per day over five days until he got down to 10% of body weight in terms of milk volume. You can probably already tell these calves are heavier just by the amount of milk. That, so even at 10% body weight, these blue calves or the step-down calves were heavier at 30 days of age, so they were getting a little bit more milk. But regardless, he took this out to about 46 days, and then over the course of a week, he diluted the milk down so that they were completely off milk by 52 days. Okay, what did this do in terms of starter intake? And what you can see is that there was no difference in starter intake despite in, in the first 30 days, despite there being twice as much milk in the step down as the conventional calves. So the prediction here would have been if you believe that calves that are less than four weeks of age will compensate for the lack of nutrition from milk by eating more starter was not true. We were not, he was not able to increase starter intake by just feeding a little amount of milk. However, once the calves were about four weeks of age, in both treatments we actually see an increase in starter intake. But what's interesting is that those calves that were conventionally fed, so just 10% of body weight, they ate less starter than those calves that had received significantly more milk in the first four weeks of life. He weaned at about 52 days of age, and then he looked at starter intake up to 90 days, and you can see that those step-down calves were still consuming significantly more starter in those weeks following weaning. So now what about body weight? Well, you give a calf more nutrition and it pays you back in gain. And so you can see what's really fascinating here is that even before 30 days of age, those calves that were fed twice as much milk as those calves that were fed 10% of body weight in terms of milk equivalent were able to gain significantly more weight than those calves that were restricted. And we were able to maintain that advantage to the end of the experiment to 90 days. So one of the things that we've been doing quite a bit of is actually working with farmers in our community and working with them on their milk feeding regimes. And one of the most popular recommendations that we end up giving is for them to actually switch how they're feeding milk. 
Many of them have actually adopted the notion of feeding more milk. But what they do is they start out with low volumes of milk, and then when the calves are four to six weeks of age, they increase the volume of milk. And in some ways it makes sense because they think, you know, the calf's older, it should drink more. What we're actually recommending is they, they flip that. They feed high volumes of milk in the first four weeks of life or however long they can, they want, I mean, a minimum of three to four weeks. And then at some point um, they can start reducing that milk and then what you see is this increase in starter. So we see these tremendous advantages in, in uh, body weight gain and interesting, I mean, there's been some work now out of Cornell um, with Mike Van Amberg and Jim Drakeley and they have shown, and a number of other, other studies in Israel, I think there's a couple in Israel, a couple in Europe now that have shown that if you can provide this increased uh, plane of nutrition in the first four weeks of life, you're, you'll, the calf, that heifer calf will pay you back during her first lactation. And we're seeing a significant increase in milk production in those heifers that were provided increased nutrition in the first four weeks of life compared to those that weren't. Okay, so one of the things that we've been doing, um, and Khan did this work as well, is okay, if we provide high levels of nutrition in these milk feeding period and we get these gains and we're able to achieve gains of close to a kilo, uh, so sort of two pounds a day for some of these calves, the whole notion of starter has, you know, we've shown that incre it increases starter intake, but what about hay? Uh, and forage. Um, I grew up on a beef cattle ranch and, you know, where calves were reared outside with their mothers and you often see, or, and, and I saw these calves that even sort of a week or 10 days old would be nibbling at the silage during the, you know, when they were six, eight weeks of age. And you see them sort of playing with the grass. And so I've often wondered whether or not um, our recommendation to not feed forage is come because we've actually looked at this whole thing in the wrong way, or at least from a, through lenses that didn't really reflect the natural um, evolution of these baby calves or cattle in general. We know that it's they're born as monogastrics and they have this innate desire to become a ruminant. And um, I'm sure many of you have seen these baby calves try to, uh, to chew their cud the first time. They get their mouth all kind of weird and you see that they, they don't really know what to do with it. And so one of the things, and, and I was trained originally as a nutritionist, when I think back to my nutrition days, we we ought to, or we often, or we most often evaluated something, some type of forage or the food that we were giving these animals in terms of the amount that they ate or the amount they consumed. And so the whole idea is that if they ate some, more of something that is potentially better than if they ate less of something. And one of the challenges when you look at some of the old work on feeding forages to, to young calves, I mean, there's very little of it. And the recommendation is that you shouldn't do it. That, and the reasons given is that if you're 
feeding um, forage, that the calves would preferentially eat the forage, get these really big hay bellies, and it, would, it was a disaster. But I think, to me, the way I look at that is all of that made sense if you have a calf that is extremely hungry. And I think our original paradigm of feeding these calves only 10% of body weight, especially in those first four weeks of life, what we actually were creating or are creating are very, very hungry calves. And lo and behold, you know, they evolved to actually eat forage. So rather than eating starter, maybe it's more natural for them to just go crazy on this forage, which they can't digest, so it sits in their rumen and just causes us grief. And so what we thought is we need to relook, revisit the whole issue of forage in a calf diet, but now from the perspective of a calf that is not hungry, that it's actually getting all of its nutrition from the milk and the little bit of starter. And so we did an experiment where we looked at baby calves that had access only to starter and those that had access to starter and hay. And what you can see is that this is now intake in terms of grams per day, is that those calves that had access to hay were actually also eating more dry matter intake compared to those calves that were just eating the starter. We ran some bull calves for this in this experiment, and we also did some slaughter studies, and what we could show was that those calves that were fed forage before weaning had larger rumens, and these were empty body weight rumens, so they had the rumen from an, as an anatomical structure was heavier than those calves, in calves that had access to forage than those calves that didn't, and we also had higher women pHs. And I think this is a really important finding because, um, so this is the pH and then the next one is the rumen weight, is really important because I think one of the biggest challenges that we have in the baby heifer calf, particularly around weaning, is rumen acidosis. And there hasn't been enough um, acknowledgement that I think when we feed these calves these starter diets with no forage, that this is something that they struggle with. So I just want to switch now to this whole issue of the milk feeding system and looking at it from the calf's perspective. You know, this is, this is life. This is what the calf evolved to do. It evolved to drink from its mother. It's used to having four teeth and drinking lots and lots of milk. This is milk feeding from our perspective. And I mean, this is just a picture of our dairy. I mean, being scientists, we like to monitor everything, but we have these milk feeding systems. We have all this technology. Um, you know, it's this, and even I would argue, even if you just have a bucket, is very, very different than what that calf evolved to eat from. And, and we're seeing a lot of work now, or a lot of farmers transitioning to these automatic feeders, and so we were interested in what does this look like from the baby's perspective. And I'm going to show you some, some uh, data where I'm going to try and convince you that for them, this is like a lottery. They, we take these systems, like this, this um, the feeding system here that I have from Delaval, and we can electronically code in how much milk that calf's going to get, when it's going to get it, all of that kind of stuff. The calf doesn't know what our program is. It just 
And so it goes up and it sort of takes a chance. Well, maybe it's my time to eat, to get food now. Maybe I can go to the feeder. Maybe it will give me milk or not. So one of the things that we were interested in, and, and this was really driven from a very practical perspective, because many of these um, companies were selling these automatic milk feeders, and they're not cheap, that's saying that you could easily feed 20 calves on one feeder. And so we saw a lot of farmers put these in um, who get, went from individual housing systems, um, especially in sort of the mid-2000s where the whole idea of feeding calves more milk was very novel and just like, no, you can't do that. Um, so they were feeding restricted amounts of milk and they were putting these calves then in a group of 20 and as many of you probably know, the wheels fell off the bus. Um, it was a disaster because they high incidence of cross-sucking, um, which also increases the likelihood of disease transmission. And so we thought, well, let's see what this looks like from an experimental perspective. And can we tease out what is driving this cross-sucking? Um, and so what we did, and we had a PhD student, Andrea de Paula Vieira from Brazil. She was a veterinarian, very interested in calves. So she had two treatments. She, her treatments consisted of half the calves in the pen were provided ad libitum access to milk from the milk feeder, so they could go whenever they want and drink as however much they wanted. And the other calves were fed the standard amount, which was four liters a day, and they were, and that was divided up into I think, four feedings. And so four one liter feedings. And so then what she did is she looked at the time spent in the feeder. And so what you can see here is that those calves that were fed at limited amount of milk were spending about 55 minutes a day in the feeder. And if you recall, I said that on average calves that suck from their mom, it's about 47, 45 to 50 minutes a day. So very similar time spent feeding as if they were suckling from their mom. Interestingly, those calves that were fed only four liters of milk per day were spending twice the amount of feeder, time in the feeder. So now, you know, I'll let you do the math, but there's only 24 hours a day, and if each calf is in there for 100 minutes a day, you use up your time pretty fast. And as this picture shows, what happens is those calves that are occupying the feeder, the other calf comes up, wants in, he's super hungry, chances are that he'll likely, she, he or she will likely cross-suck. And I think what these calves are doing is that they're just spending their time in the feeder gambling that they're going to get access. And we were able to show that experimentally where if I look at the rewarded versus unrewarded visits, those calves that were on four liters a day, 80% of the time that they were in the feeder, they were not getting any milk. Whereas those calves that were ad limitum, they only went once or twice a day would they visit the feeder and not drink. So we have a huge proportion of the visits in those restricted fed calves, those four liters per day, that we call unrewarded. We also argued in this paper that this was classic hunger behavior. So the calves were trying to tell us that they were very, very hungry. They all had lots of starter available, but even though they had the starter available, they were still exhibiting this hunger behavior. 
Okay, so we have this issue where we have these calves and our um, basically industry standard, and we still have well over 50% of the calves, at least the data in the United States, that are fed restricted amounts of milk. And because of the restricted amounts of milk, we are forcing them to also be individually housed. Because as I said, if you take a baby calf that is fed restricted amounts, has huge desire to suck, and if it's hungry, it will suck on other calves. The thing is, is once we know that we can we feed them more milk, we can get rid of the hunger behavior, maybe I think we need to take a look at social housing. And this, a lot of this is, at least in our group, we've been very concerned about trying to come up with solutions that will make the industry more socially sustainable in the long run. One of the issues that is huge for the dairy industry, it's gonna to have to get its head wrapped around is the, the criticisms around cow-calf separation. And, and that's a whole different talk, but the issue is it's not just cow-calf separation. We also have to try and sell individual housing. And, and we know from our public attitude work that this is extremely difficult for the public to actually accept. So we were interested in, looking at, you know, could we come up with a feeding system that allowed calves to go from individual to pair housing? And the reason we went with pair housing is that we felt from an infrastructure change that this was the least costly for farmers to actually embrace if they were so desiring, as they so desired to. And in this case, you know, our, we have in our facility, we have these individual pens they have this divider and we just took the divider out. And so our pair house calves have exactly the same amount of space on a per calf basis. We have two nipples, we have um, you know, everything, two forage buckets, two starter buckets, everything is just, each calf has its own resources, it just happens to have a friend in its pen. So one of the things that Andrea was interested in was just looking at, you know, the production, um, sort of the growth performance, the performance of these calves, but also how does this pair housing compare to single housing in terms of things like starter intake? And what about weaning distress? So she ran calves that were individually housed and pair housed. These are all in the same barn. The individual calves could see other calves across the alley, but they couldn't touch another calf. Whereas the pair house calves, as you can see in the picture, are able to you know, basically sleep with their buddy, um, everything exactly the same. They just have a friend to do that with. And so one of the first things she did is she looked at starter intake during the milk feeding period. And I should remind you, all of these calves are fed eight liters of milk a day. They were fed via a bottle. They had access to four liters in the morning for two hours and four liters in the afternoon for two hours. So they, it's not that they had milk all day. They just, it was these two hour feeding blocks, morning and night, four liters at a time. She um, fed these high volumes up until about day 30 and then she stepped down to about 10% of body weight. And then she used essentially what I showed you, that feeding program at the very beginning, where then um, she, over the course of five days, 
she weaned these calves, so they were weaned around day 52, or starting at day 48, weaned completely from milk by day 52, and then they stayed in this environment for another week, and then she actually took these and put them in a regrouping experiment, and I'll show you those results in a second. So what happened to starter intake during the milk feeding period? This is now grams per day of the pair versus the individual. So just having a friend in the pen significantly increased the starter intake compared to those calves that were individually fed. What we think is happening here, or the, our explanation for this, is what we call social facilitation. So it's likely that one calf went to eat starter, the other one saw them eating, and then mimicked that behavior. And they so basically this go, sort of goes back and forth, culminating in actually increase in starter in those pair house calves compared to the individually housed calves. She also looked at the weaning response. And remember, the feeding regime was identical for all calves on both treatments. This is now the weaning distress with the vocalizations, the number per two-hour period per day, um, starting the days before weaning, so to get a baseline period, starting at 42 days of life. Weaning started at day 48 and was finished by day 52. So what you can see here is the red line is the single house calves and the pair house calves are in the black line. These are all in the same barn and there's calves that are individually and pair housed being reared at the same time. Essentially what this, these results show us is that if you're gonna go through a stressful event, it's better to go through with a friend. So there seemed to be what we call social buffering going on that they were, we were able to reduce the distress response, in this case vocalizations, by just having them pair housed. Okay, what she then did is she took one pair and one individual and she regrouped them into a group house pen where there was a grain feeder, there was a forage feeder, and the this is actually a picture of the pen. Um, we had pig tenderfoot footing at the front of the pen where they access the feed, and then we had this sort of open sawdust pack. She took a pair and a single, and she regrouped them into this group where three calves were already living in the pen that knew how to access the grain feeder. They had previous experience, had lived in there for already for three or four weeks, and were very comfortable with all the mechanics that they had to deal with. So one of the things that she did is when she regrouped these heifer, newly weaned heifer calves, is she looked at latency to start eating grain. And remember, they'd been eating grain out of a bucket beforehand, and now this was the first time they saw this electronic grain feeder. So this first graph shows us this is the latency to start eating grain. Those individually housed calves took nearly 50 hours before they were able to consume their first grain meal. And we compare that to the pair house calves. They only took nine hours. So we were able to significantly reduce that latency to start feeding. And what we think is happening here is that those pair house calves are just used to watching other calves do things and were more observant to see where those calves were finding the grain and then able to mimic that. 
Those same calves Andrea followed for two weeks. This is now solid feed intake, kilograms per day on the x-axis, and this is the days following mixing. Not surprised, I mean, you won't be surprised that those single-house calves, they didn't eat for two days, as you can see on the x-axis. And then what you see is they obviously found the feeder, they had a big increase in, in grain intake, and then they backed off, dropped a little bit intake, and then they increased intake, and they went back down again. What we think is happening there is that they're basically are so hungry that they're eating as much grain as they can and probably suffering a little bit from ruminacidosis. And we know that for a ruminant or one that's trying to become a ruminant, the best way to get rid of ruminacidosis is not to eat. And then the rumen pH comes up again. I think they started feeling better. They were super hungry. And then they ate a lot of grain again. The rumen pH likely fell again and then they stopped eating, and that's why you see this a little bit of bouncing, this yo-yoing. You compare that to the pear house calves, they never really missed a beat. Not surprising with those fluctuations in dry matter intake, this is now the weight gain. Those calves that didn't eat for two days lost over two kilos initially in weight gain. They had a huge growth check. And then what you see, which is reflective likely of their feeding patterns, is this classic sort of boom and bust. They gain lots of weight, they lose weight. They gain weight, they lose weight. The other place where you see typical feeding patterns like this is in uh, feedlot cattle that are feeding high-grain diets, where, you, where I know the feedlot managers continually complain about this yo-yoing. And I think it's just they're the only way that they know how to control ruminacidosis. One of the things okay. that we're interested yeah. uh, so in, this is one of the places where I'm going to take away your privileges and I'm going to run a video. So if you give me okay. a second to set that up, it'll be great. Yeah. All right. Let me. Can I talk while you're doing this? You can certainly talk. I just have okay. to finagle around and get that file up here. So one of the things that we were interested in doing was understanding sort of behavioral what was causing these increased latencies. And so Andrea ran another experiment where she reared these calves individually and in pairs and she did an open field test. And so this first video that you're going to okay. see, so the black calf in the photo is a calf that was pair housed. The calf that has, so the, is the calf with more white was an individually housed calves. It had seen other calves, but it had never touched another calf. And both of these calves had never seen each other. And so what we saw were these really long latencies to um, touch the calf. And then what happened is once the calf touched the calf, it didn't know how to leave the calf alone. And um, I'll show you some data. So these were this, and you know, one, what I often say to people when they watch these videos, if I could put the white calf through a test and I were to ask it, what did the environment look like that you were just in, I think that calf would fail. You compare that and you can just yeah. compare that to the next video, if the video shows, what you would see are two pair house calves that never have um, met each other. 
which if you recall in the first video, they didn't do. So you can see these two calves have never met. They sniff each other. They're incredibly calm, and we've been able to repeat this over a number of experiments looking in terms of handling. Very, very calm. And then what they do is they go and explore the environment. Okay, so this is latency to approach, and you can see that those individually housed calves took significantly longer to actually get the courage up to touch that other calf compared to pair. And this is the number of social interactions. Once the calves that were individual touched, they were actually totally persistent. They didn't know how to stop touching. And in some ways, it's they, they have no social awareness of of their um, of how to deal with this other calf. So one of the things we were interested in was then now looking at what would happen if we reared these calves with um, an older animal, trying to mimic what we would see in nature. So the experiment there was looking at two calves of the same age with an older weaned calf that actually didn't fit into the milk feeder, and we compared that to three calves of the same age, and they were all born within the one week. What you can see here is starter intake kilograms per day per calf, and again, they were all fed high volumes of milk, stepped down at about four weeks of age, and then weaned over the course of a week. And what you can see is that calves that were housed with an older companion in the blue ate significantly more starter than those calves that were housed with um, three calves of the same age. Interesting, we also looked at hay intake, and those calves that had been we housed with the older companion had ate significantly more hay. And again, I think what's happening here is this social facilitation. They're seeing the older animal eat hay, maybe I should check it out. And then, this is now visits to the milk feeder, number per calf per day, and the experimental days around weaning. And we're looking at what we call unrewarded visits to the milk feeder. So they're no longer allowed access to milk. How much hunger behavior are they showing? So how much are they hoping that they're gonna get milk? And what you can see here is that those calves housed with the older companion significantly reduced the number of visits to the milk feeder. And I think here what we see is that they were just more used to going to the other food sources. And this all worked out to actually, in this case, we saw a production response in terms of increased gains pre-weaning and post-weaning. And I'm not saying that we should automatically house these calves with an older companion, but I think it does teach us a little bit about how these animals learn. You know, they're, they're used to, from an evolutionary perspective, being in these multi-herd um, groups with different ages. Okay, so the very last experiment that I want to talk to you guys about is, and hopefully give you guys some really strong evidence as to why we should be social housing, is there was some work that was done in the 1960s by Harry Harlow, where he took non-human primates, and his comparison was, primates, babies that were reared with their mothers in more um, multi-sib groups and, and multi sort of these um, groups of monkeys with mothers and their babies. And he compared that to monkeys, babies that were taken away from their mother at birth and then reared with a puppet. You would never get ethics approval for an experiment like this, but in the 19, today, but in 1960s, you, you could do this. And 
he showed learning difficulties in these these non-human primates that were reared with the puppet, abnormal social behavior, abnormal repetitive behavior. behavior. He also showed neurobiological changes, and he also showed fear, and particularly fear of new foods. This work's been repeated with rodents, and we had a student come that came from the human side. She'd done uh, rodent work um, on the human psychology side, and she saw our individually housed calves that we were running for an experiment, and she convinced us that we were actually causing huge challenges in terms of cognition and cognitive uh, deficits in calves. So being the experimenters that we are, we thought, okay, let's do an experiment. So we decided to replicate what Harry Harlow did in the 60s, but this time with calves. So we compared individually housed calves with calves that were reared in the presence of their dam. We just made one minor modification in that the cows during the day did not have access to their babies, but they did at night, but we put a bra on the cows. And the idea was that we were really trying to figure out what this maternal contact did. One of the things that we then did is we looked at trying to understand the effects of social rearing on cognition. And in this case, we were able to teach the calves um, and a discrimination test where half the calves were taught that if um, there was a screen at the back of the pen that was white, that they were to go, they go to the screen and then touch it and then they would get a milk reward. Those calves, if the screen turned red, they were not allowed to go. And if they went, they got a timeout. And this is the discrimination and, and then half the calves, red was positive, white was negative. And so what you can see here is this is the number of times that they went correct. And we have the number of training sessions along the y-axis. And what you have there is we did two training sessions a day. So one and two are day one, three and four is day two, five and six is day three. And what you can really see is by four days, the calves that had been reared in the presence of their mom knew what they were doing. They learned that, you know, if I'm going to get milk, I got to do this right. Interestingly, the calves, oops, uh, the calves that were individually housed, they also learned this task, not a problem. You know, and about, I mean, they had a bit of a blip at about day three, but essentially they learned it just as fast as the, as the socially housed calves. So yeah. what you're gonna see here, this is just the video that shows, the calves have to um, start, put their nose to the start box, which is this little um, tin thing at the front here, and then you'll see the calves, um, and they'll look at the screen at the back, and then they'll decide you know, if it's white or it's red. And I believe this calf, red, yeah, red was positive, white was negative. So red is positive, he goes and gets it. And you can hear he gets the milk reward. turns white, he's not supposed to go, or she's not supposed to go. Which is also, hopefully you guys can see, calves are very easy to train. <laughs> okay, Moran, you can give it back to me now. Okay. So, it doesn't matter how you grew up, how, they, how we raised them, they could learn that, okay? So everybody could learn it, but then what we did is we changed the rules. Those that were reversed, so it's white was positive, now red was positive. So what before they got a milk reward for, now they got a timeout. And then we look to see what happens. These are the socially housed calves. It took them a day and a half to figure out what was going on. 
And then it was like this big light bulb went on and said, oh, you want to do the opposite. This is what happened with the individually housed calves. They were not able to relearn. So think of this from the perspective, if you've got a parallel parlor and you hear this all the time, where farmers say, I've got cows that load really well from the left, and then when I try to load them from the right, it's impossible. And it could be that we're actually, you know, setting them up to have challenges just from the fact that we reared them individually. We also showed that those calves were individually housed calves. This is now food neophobia. So how long did it, how much did they eat when they saw a new feed for the first time? We did two trials, one with hay and one with carrots. This is individual versus socially housed calves. And interesting, this is nearly entirely explained by the latency to go. So they would be afraid, they were afraid to go check out the bucket um, if they were individually housed. So the question is, what is enough contact, individual versus pair? You know, could we get the same benefits that we saw with maternal contact by just socially housing them? And so we did an experiment where we looked at individual through the milk feeding period, individual and then paired at six weeks, paired from birth, and then this really complex environment. And this is the success in the reversal tasks. And what you can see is that again, and this is a completely different set of calves, is that again, the individual calves struggled with, they could learn the task, but they couldn't learn the new rule. We see late pairing is still better than individual, and early pair, we were just as successful as the group housing. So this is what, then I, when I speak to farmers, I say, look, you know, what you really need to do is work with what, what works for you on, those, on that farm. Some farmers, you know, pairing at birth isn't the right thing, but if you can get them to pair at some point before weaning, it's still better. We also looked at novel object as a way to see, you know, this exploratory behavior. And again, what we see interesting here is that even the complex environment worked with the mother, these calves were much more bold and confident than the individual or the pair. And then we also looked at, this is now intake in terms of solid feed. And what you can see here, we, I don't have any intake, obviously, for the calves that were reared with their mother, but you can see that early pairing, we do see the benefits as we'd shown in those other experiments is this social facilitation works um, in the early pairing. And we do also see some benefits still in terms of increased intake, even in the late pairing. So hopefully, You'll see where I, I hopefully have convinced you that feeding more milk is a good thing, that you need to do this via a nipple. It's more natural for these calves, will reduce cost sucking. We need to feed twice as much milk than what we've traditionally done because the traditional feeding practices of 10% of body weight, we are creating very hungry calves. I think we've seen some benefits in using a step-down weaning um, approach to, to reduce the distress response around weaning. I think there's some benefits to feeding forage early in life as these animals try to become ruminants. I think in forage, it's just about having access to a little bit. I don't think they actually want to eat a lot of it. It's just they're looking for, as a nutritionist would say, the scratch factor. And I think there's tremendous benefits to providing social housing. And I would argue that I think this also creates animals that are easier to handle later on in life. 
And again, I'd just like to thank my funders. And if there's any questions, I'd be happy to answer some. I want. I, I just think that was a terrific presentation. So before I open the floor for questions, I want to invite our listeners to attend our first webinar of the year to be held on the 8th of February, 2017 at 5 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. We'll be hosting Dr. Barry Bradford. Um, Dr. Bradford is a professor of metabolic physiology in the Department of Animal Sciences and Industry at Kansas State University. He completed his PhD at Michigan State University where he stu studied mechanisms underlying nutrient-induced satiety. He currently oversees a diverse research program focused on interactions of inflammation and metabolism, signaling effects of nutrients, and novel approaches for formulation of dairy cattle rations. In addition, he teaches more than 180 students per year in animal nutrition and physiology courses. Through his research and education efforts, Dr. Bradford seeks to improve sustainability of animal-derived foods primarily by improving the health and productivity of dairy cattle. Titled Fiber, Fill, and Fermentability, and it's in February. He really liked the idea of all the alliteration. And what determines feed intake of dairy cows? Save the date and time, Wednesday, February 8th at 5 p.m. Um, Standard Time, Eastern Standard Time. And of course, as always and throughout this year, we want to thank our generous sponsors and the people who have made this possible. Tom Taluki and AMTS, USA and Global, Marcos Neves Piera, University of Lavras, Marcelo Hens Ramos at 3R Lab in Brazil, Paula Torillo in Argentina, and our translator at each of the locations in Brazil and Argentina. Our generous sponsors make it possible for us to get great speakers and manage the program. We thank our gold sponsor, Ajinomoto Heartland, Superior Nutrition Through Amino Acids. Our silver sponsors are Arm & Hammer Animal Nutrition, Virtus, maker of Strata with EPA and DHA Omega-3s, and Prequil with Omega-6s. Our bronze sponsors are Jeffo, Life Made Easier, Dairy One Forage Laboratory, and Dairyland Laboratories and Quality Liquid Feeds. I am now going to open the, the floor up for questions. So Tim Von Sanden asks, what is the incidence of cross-sucking on paired calves? Okay, so we don't actually see any cross-sucking in pair-house calves, as long as you're feeding high volumes of milk. Cross-sucking is an indication of hunger. I think the calves are trying to tell us something. And so if you can come up with, if you can recognize that and accept that and, and then feed them accordingly, then I think you essentially can get rid of cross-sucking. Of course, you know, you've got to think about what you're feeding them. We always hope that if we fed lots of starter early on, that that would, that would negate the hunger and it, the problem would go away. We know, that, as I showed you, these calves cannot consume starter in the first three weeks of life. They play with it, and I'm not, I think it should be there, but just a little bit. They play with it, but they're, they can't use that for nutrition. So if you feed them higher volumes of milk, and we've just published some data that, I mean, to me, eight is the minimum. We're seeing calves that, you know, 10, 12 liters a day in those first three to four weeks, they'll drink nearly as much as you give them I mean, up to a point, but eight or 10 liters is, works really, really well. When you feed them though, don't give them a nipple with a really big hole in it. 
you want them to work for it because you want them to get rid of that or to to be able to um, deal with that motivation to suck. And so for me, the best picture is a calf drinking milk, a reasonably small nipple, and there's just all this saliva coming down. And that, if you have all that, I really don't think that you're going to see cross-sucking. Okay, thank you. Um, a second question from the U.S., and then I'll switch over to Paula in Argentina for a few questions. Um, this is from Sylvia Barucci. Have you measured health issues in paired versus single um, raising calf situations? So we we have done that. Um, that said, our experiments are very much on the acute behavioral effects, and so we don't we we don't normally measure enough. Like we don't have enough calves to ask that question. That said, we measure it. We've never seen a difference. However. The Scandinavians have been working on this from an epidemiological perspective for a long time, and they're big vet community, big on health. Small groups versus single, no difference in health. Big groups, yes, big groups are a problem, and so that's why we recommend, you know, groups no bigger than eight. And I actually, I'm a huge fan of pair housing, just because you're not, I really, you're not going to see increase in health problems, you are, the thing is we're dealing with a farmer community that has for the last whatever 40 years individually housed. The management is, is different. You know, you got to be a little bit more cognizant of, of the pair. And so what I say is if you've got a producer that you think can work with this is don't even think about pair housing until you've increased the volume of milk and their nipple feeding. And then just go to a pair. You have all the benefits of social housing without the challenges of having these dynamic big groups where we know as soon as you're over sort of eight calves, health is an issue. This is Paula Torillo from Argentina. Go ahead, Paula. Yes. Hi, Nina. Hi. Thank you for the great presentation. Oh, my pleasure. I have a lot of questions here from Argentina. Um, the first one is from Ariel. Which would be the maximum milk intake you would suggest in a two daily feeding system? Oh, um, so we, that's a little bit of a function of how, I mean, we've done four to five liters in the morning, so give them about two hours to do that, and it's, they, the calves are very smart. They figure out very quickly that they have to get sort of that four to five liters. They need to, if they're gonna drink it, they gotta drink it in sort of two hours. Um, and that works really well. It's something that is hugely important for us because to have, unless you have um, a, you know, a cooling system, having milk outside at, when it's really hot is not a good thing. And so we just put, um, we have these six liter bottles that we can use and we just let them suck on that for two hours and then whatever, I mean, very rarely, once they're about a week old, they're drinking all of that. Yes, yes. Uh, this is from Georgina. Which kind of forages do you suggest to feed the uh, to calves? Uh, yeah. Alfalfa or grass hay? And, and Pedro, uh, in this question, uh, asks how much as a percentage of the diet 
and uh, other recommendations about uh, crude protein, NDF, digestibility of the hay. Okay, I don't, I, I guess the thing is, I wouldn't worry about all that. They're not using the forage for nutrition per se. They're using the forage to become, go from a monogastric to a ruminant. There is some debate out there. Uh, Alex Bach in Spain, he actually has got some work showing that, you know, you can actually feed fairly, you know, high India, uh, fairly lignified. So he's actually showed some benefits to even just straw, chopped, of course. I mean, do you know what we feed? We feed TMR. We just take the TMR from the cows because they actually really like that. And it's, it doesn't cost any more. They don't eat a lot. It's just, I think, super important for them as they transition for the, um, from the um, monogastric to the ruminant. I'm far more concerned about the crude protein of the starter. If you start to feed high volumes of milk, I like to see about 21% crude protein in the starter because they're putting down so much lean tissue growth. Uh, the third one is from Ariel. In case we want to increase intake in our calves, would you prefer increasing feeding frequency, milk intake at each feeding, or increase solids in the milk? Uh, why you would suggest one of those or, or a couple? And in which of these cases the calf has a better performance? Can we improve this with automatic feeders? Okay, there's a lot of things in that question. Um, okay, I, I, for full disclosure, I know very little about uh, milk replacer. I mean, we do most of the studies we've done have been on whole milk. Feeding frequency, you know, again, I guess I'm most happy the closer we can get to a more naturalistic system, I think the better the calves are. Whether or not that actually equates into increased gain, I can't tell you. I think... I mean, we've, we, a lot will depend on what is, what is easiest for the farmer. So what we often do with farmers is many of them have, you know, four liter bottles to do more milk in the morning and the afternoon is very difficult. We just say, well, then give them a lunch meal. Um, what we know is, um, you know, the more milk in those first four weeks in however way the farmer can get it, and you guys know your clients the best, you just have to be a little bit more innovative, or you need to think about what, will, what can you work into the existing management. In some of those cases, it will be a third meal. In other cases, it will be to buy, I mean, that's one of the things that in the dairy industry, we haven't done a very good job at the type of containers that we use to provide milk. The best place to get a larger milk container is actually from the veal industry because they're used to feeding higher volumes of milk and, some, and they have nipple bottles or nipple buckets that have six liters. So, um, you know, whether or not they're going to get increased, I think they're going to drink as much milk as they, and it's going to be somewhere between probably 10 and 12 liters. Um, but if 10 and 12 liters doesn't work on your farm, I'm okay with eight. But again, I'm not going to say that the magic number is three or five. It depends on what you work with. I would not want to see less than two. 
And I can't remember the other question now. Sorry. All right. Uh, <laughs> let's see. Paula, did you have the follow-up question on that? Yes. Go ahead. Oh, the milk, the automatic yes. milk feeders. Yes. I mean, there. what I would do is I would look, you know, on average with their, with their mother, they're drinking five to seven liters, five to seven meals a day. I would take my 10 liters and divide it into five to seven meals um, in an ideal world. But again, it depends on what works and what type of machine you have. Hello, Marcos. Do you have any questions from Brazil? Yes. Hello, Mark. Okay. Good night, Nina. I think it was very informative and clear. Really nice. Thank Enjoyed you. A lot. Uh, I have a question here. Uh, we, we use a, a lot of people here have has been using six liters of milk during the first yeah. phase of, of, of winning, and you said that your minimum would be eight and ten. Or, or what, do you really believe that? Uh, how, what, what would be the gain? Like, if, would, would you predict it from? If we go from six to eight, would be would we expect a, a huge difference? Or? Yeah, I would. I would. I think you're gonna this, the difference between six and eight is social housing becomes an option. I would not do social housing. To me, six liters, you're it's a very risky business to go to social housing. Mm-hmm. So the benefits are. I mean, eight liters, you're gonna and with six liters, I've also seen incidents of cross sucking. So I think the, the whole management system works much better with eight to 10 liters in those first four weeks of life. Those calves cannot eat starter in that time. So why not just give them lots of access to milk? And then once, if milk is expensive for you or you, you know, then the minimum I, you know, to, you can bring it down at about four weeks, but I've had some farmers that feed lots of milk because they have surplus milk all the way up to eight or 10 weeks and then wean. You just can't wean abruptly. You have to bring them down slowly. Okay? Okay. Thank you. Okay. Have another? Yes, go ahead with another and then I think I have a fairly good backlog. Okay. You have a lot. Yeah. Uh, Just a question on forage. What's more on forage management for calves, not on quality? What you suggest? Adding to the concentrate, giving ad lib? We're sewing no, up things would, that have I buckets. Would, yeah, I would just I would do it separate from the I mean, you can do I would do it separate from the, the the starter right now. I would give them access to starter and then I would just I'd actually give them a TMR mixture with grain and forage together. Like if you have some TMR left over from the cows or whatever would or just chopped grass hay works really well too. Just some sort of forage. But again, you have to be feeding high volumes of milk. Because if you don't, they're going to eat all that forage and don't have the room and microbes to digest it yet. Because they're so hungry. You know, if you go back to the old work on starter, when people were trying to develop starters for baby calves, you look at the methodology, all of that work was done on slatted floors or calves in crates. And you ask those scientists why they did that, one of the most common answers was because they ate the bedding. And so therefore we had to take away the bedding. And I would argue they're trying to tell us something. They're looking for some sort of fiber to help transition from a monogastric to a ruminant. I have a number of questions. The first one is from Stephen Emanuel, and he says, why not feed eight liters of milk for seven weeks and wean at eight weeks of age? If they nursed on a dam, they would consume milk ad libit 
ad libitum, um, as with like beef cows. Since. I mean, I, yeah, and I think I sort of answered that question beforehand. Yeah. To me, the minimum of feeding high volumes is four weeks. You know, I would, I mean, if in nature, those cows would suckle from their dam up until probably seven to nine months of age. So, it, again, it's bringing practically what kind of milk volume do you have available to you. If you can feed higher volumes longer, great. Um, but the minimum amount of high volume is four weeks. Oh, you go ahead, because I am yeah. not seeing So this that. is Alan Dyke. Um, he said, do calves that are individually, I guess, housed in pens that have open bars instead of solid walls as dividers and can smell and touch the bars, is that the same as when two calves are paired together? Great question. Research has been done. No, it doesn't work. So they've even looked at, they've looked at bars, and they've also looked, um, my, some colleagues of mine did follow-up work when we did the first work on pairs, where they actually cut a hole in the side, in the pen between the calves so they could stick their heads through. Behaviorally and cognitively, those calves act like individually housed calves, not like pair housed calves. I have a question from, um, this is from um, Andre Roy, and he said, and, and you mentioned Alex Bach's work um, earlier yeah. from in Spain. He was presenting in Quebec last week, and he is now suggesting that maybe eight liters or six liters is okay. How do we work out such different recommendations? Yeah, and it's a huge challenge. I mean, um, I guess we, I would be very uncomfortable. Uh, we've looked at, we've just published a paper. It'll come out in the next month or so in Journal of Dairy Science, where we looked at six, eight, 10, and 12. And we, our work does not support six liters, um, maybe in a little Jersey calf, but at least not in the Holstein calf, that we don't see the gains um, or the performances that really the minimum for us is eight. Okay. I wonder if it might be somewhat of a difference in size, even if they're Holstein calf size of animal. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's going to have obviously some yeah. some effect. All right. Um, this one is from Steve Adam. Nina, in practice, do you know farmers where they put older wean companion with younger calves, or do you have a suggestion how to do this without an automatic milk feeder? Or, uh, for example, a pail with a nipple, the older calf will drink all the milk. Thanks. Yeah, and, and I think it's a really good question. I, I mean, practically speaking, I'm not exactly sure how to do that unless you put a race. So sort of you could have the nipple where you have um, – where the calf has to walk in like to an automatic feeder, that it's narrow enough that the bigger calf get, can't get in. I mean, even a calf that is 70 days of age will drink the milk if it can get access to it. I mean, we did that experiment to try to understand how these calves are learning. And clearly, you know, again, when you think of their herd animals, they, they do look to the older animals for learning. And, um, yeah, practically speaking, maybe a little bit operationally difficult other than trying to figure out how to get the milk to the calf in such a way that the bigger calf can't get access. Okay, thank you. Um, this is from Jose Alpazar. According to the research presented in social housing, heifer should you house by heifer size or weight difference, which should be the consideration? Well, um, what we do is... Um, it's not so much size or weight, it's age, right? So what we try to do in an ideal world, and again, farm size is going to dictate this to some degree, is, um, you know, calves that are 
per, in a perfect world are born in the same week, but we've even paired them up to two weeks apart. I think you can actually go a little bit further than that. You just have to make sure that the space where the milk is being fed, that there's enough space between the two of them that the little one doesn't get bullied. And you may have already answered this, but go ahead and reiterate. This is from Donna Wirtz. What would you recommend to be the largest group of the largest size of groups with feeding these high 20% body weight volumes? A perfect world, five to eight, no more than eight. I mean, the research, the epidemiological health research doesn't doesn't support bigger groups than that. And that's one of the challenges that we see with, you know, a lot of these automatic feeders because they're sold on the premise that you can house these really large groups. The challenge that um, I see with that too is, unless you're on really, really big farms, you're also increasing the number of regroupings. So, and that work has been shown that small groups work better than big groups. There's no difference in a small group uh, in terms of health outcomes between a small group and an individually housed calf. And dynamic groups are way worse than stable groups. And I think, you know, from the dairy industry, we can learn something that the pig people did, which was this whole all in, all out. So you make the group, you fill the group to whatever size works on your farm. And again, I'm a huge proponent of pair housing and I've seen successful pair housing in Brazil, in Japan, in Europe now, and it's worked really, really well uh, because of the, you know, it's something that most farmers can implement, but no more than, I mean, eight calves will work. And again, if you're going to do this, what I would recommend is that farmers start with twos and he gets that working really well, then maybe put two pairs together and go to four and get that to work really well and then go to eight. Don't go from one to eight. All right. Thank you. Um, Nina, we have so many questions. I am going to let Paula ask for a few. I know that Marcos in Brazil has a lot of questions. As long as you're good to go, we're going to keep no, I'm going. Good. I'll let Paula um, go through a bunch. Uh, yes, uh, the next question is from Agostina, which is the ratio of young to old calves do you recommend and how old they should be? Well, I think that comes back to the first question is, you know, what's the age spread in the group? And I mean, it's, I think the benefits of social contact, as I showed you, outweigh anything that you get from individual housing. And so, um, you know, again, you know, within a week is perfect. Two weeks works. Um, we've done up to, you know, calves that are 70 to 90 days that are already weaned and made it work. But you're going to have to manage that accordingly, um, which is making sure that, you know, the milk is that the older calves don't, that are already weaned don't have access to it. So, again, is... You know, have we done the, has anybody done the experiment if it's, you know, one week versus two weeks apart versus three weeks apart versus four weeks apart? No, that hasn't been done. But I think, you know, our work does show the benefits of social housing in terms of cognition, preventing learning deficits, decreasing neophobia are far outweigh what, I don't even know what the advantages of to individual housing are, <laughs> but anyways. That's my take on that. Uh, another one from Carlos. 
which are the age and body weight goals at winning, at breeding, and at calving? Oh, God, I, I can't. So, I mean, what we like to do is we like to, the minimum, I mean, we're weaning at, these calves are between 70 and 80 kilos, so they've doubled their weight. I would say that that's the early weaning. I mean, we can get that to work really well. Um, what I'm not a reproduction person, so I don't know how much they should be, what their body weight should be at at breeding. That, for instance, um, I, I can't answer that one. Um, yeah, and calving, I can't answer that either. Uh, you know, whatever they are. <laughs> sorry, but yeah, I mean, we like to see do- at least double. I mean, I'd be double their weight before you by the time you wean. Uh, this is from Georgina. What would you recommend uh, uh, as an indicator? Body weight, age, daily intake? Starter intake. I mean, you want them, the thing is you want them, I mean, what we do is we bring them out and you decide that, that they are, I mean, I, I, we really recommend that farmers tape their calves so that they have an idea of what the body weight is. You know, taping, we validated that, that works really well. So you bring them up and they, you know, they will gain if you feed them well, you know, between 600 grams and, and a kilo. We've had some calves gain a kilo a day on ad libitum intake. Um, so whenever you decide, so if they're twice that, so that, let's say they're pushing 80 kilos now and in your farm you decide you want to wean then, the absolutely most important thing you do is that you slowly, even if they're only being fed 10% at that time, is you dilute the milk over four or five days. Don't stop the milk immediately because it will be a disaster. These calves, even at eight to 10 weeks of age, were never actually meant not to be receiving milk because they would normally still get milk from their mother. So we need to slowly transition them off of milk over the course of a week. We've also seen some benefits, and I didn't talk about this, but taking the milk away, but leaving the nipple there without any milk in it, because they do bond to the milk. And so if you take the milk and the nipple away at the same time, you see an increased distress response in terms of vocalization compared to if you take the milk away and the nipple away three days later. You're uncoupling the stressors. Okay, thank you. Um, I'm going to let Marcos ask a question. Hi, Nina. Uh, Hi. We would like uh, your explanation for the effect of intensive feeding of calves on the first lactation milk performance. What are your issues? What what do you think? And and do you think like uh, an event at the weaning phase, like a disease or it could impact the metabolic profile of the cow, the, the mature cow, like to induce insulin resistance or more sensitive to insulin in reality or something yeah. like that? Okay, I'll, I'll, a couple questions, see if I can remember them all. The first one, well, let's see, do the insulin resistance. I, I think a lot of the concern about feeding high volumes of milk um, arise from a single study that was published in Germany, I don't know, 30 years ago, where somebody reported feeding high volumes of milk would create fatty mammary tissue. Mike Van Amberg 
who's a physiologist, has done lot, has done, I mean, he published, I think, a number of papers where he's completely taken that apart. It was, I think they showed that it was not necessarily the best science in the world, but nobody has been ever been able to repeat that. In actual fact, there's like six or eight studies that show if you increase that level of nutrition, particularly in the first four weeks of life, that I think there's something like 500 kilos or 600 kilos more milk in the first lactation. And I see these all as benefits, that what we need to get our head wrapped around some is we often, and I mean, I worked in the nutrition world, we look at the economics in terms of income over feed costs. Well, on a baby calf, you're only spending money, right? You're not getting any income yet because you've got to grow her out. But the income comes down the road. So you are getting this increased milk production, which I think absolutely pays for any increases in milk that you gave early on. There is, I believe it's in the beef work that, sh um, so one of the things that we do know is that if you increase higher volumes of milk, you reduce the risk of illness. So you get far fewer illness cases and you actually get far fewer deaths. And that's one of the biggest challenges, I think, facing the dairy industry is we have a really bad track record when it comes to calf morbidity and calf mortality. You know, I, I mean, in the US, which is arguably some of the, the only data that we have, we're still looking at 7% death rates of calves that are born from 48 hours to weaning. And if you add those calves that are born alive and die within 48 hours, you're looking at 15% death rates. A lot of that is because they come down with pneumonia, respiratory, other respiratory disease, you know, um, enteric disease, all these things. We know that calves that are fed higher volumes of milk likely, and Mike Ballou did some of this work, I think, showed have an improved immune status. They're just healthier. But it's hard to capture that economically using the old economic paradigms that we're used to. And I think we need to do a better job of looking down the road at what are the, what are the, the benefits to this in terms of reduced disease and reduce. So I think if we can reduce the numbers of times that calves get sick, that can only be a good thing in terms of, long, of you know, her ability to cope down the road. Paula, go ahead with some questions. Yes, I have a question from Horacio. Where can we find information about calf housing? Would you recommend a special design? Uh, well, um, I mean, I don't have a website that you can go to. Um, I think there again, you know, I think we need to just put our practical hats on. Calves traditionally have always been sort of the back barn that has low, poor ventilation and everything is not so great about it. I think we need to start considering, you know, having very good ventilation, fresh air, all of those sort of things um, are important. And again, I think farmers, you know, I've seen some really cool systems where farmers have hutches and they've now put a system on the front with gating and they've made two hutches pair housing. So they've got two hutches, but the calves can go in and out. They can sleep together um, if they want to. They don't sleep together if they don't want to. They mostly do. And that's worked really, really well. Or just take out the divider between two calves. 
Does that help? Okay. Yes, another one from Nicolas. Do you have information of daily gain in calves after at least one diarrhea incident in accelerated feeding system? No, I don't have any data on that. You know, with the accelerated systems, I mean, I think they're my, and I've, I've had many conversations with Jim Drakely and Mike Van Amberg about that. I mean, I think all of those systems, you know, they, they call them accelerated. I guess, and I've joked with Jim that I think those, I think the accelerated is the wrong term. We're just feeding them like they should be fed. These are no, these, we're trying to strive for normal. And so again, it's feeding higher volumes of nutrition, um, and we're feeding them through a nipple, not through a bucket. Okay, um, Paula, I am. I don't have any questions in my window, and Mar Marcos and Marcelo have had to leave, and they wanted to say thank you very much. Do you still have some more questions, Paula? Okay, uh, this is from Pedro. I, I think uh, this question, uh, maybe uh, you can uh, repeat. It's similar to another question we already did. How many feedings do you consider we need to to feed, feed the feed We recommend considering in our system, we, the, the same people, uh, milking the cows, maybe they are working with the with the calves. It's very manual system. So again, it's like I said earlier, I think a minimum of two. And if you can do more, that's great. But we've been very successful with two feedings a day. And again, it's practical. What works practically on that farm? Okay. But again, Another question. two feedings, yeah. you just need to be able to give them, you know, four liters in the morning and just leave them enough for two hours and let them drink it. Okay. <laughs> uh, another question from Sharshina. Uh, which is the, the minimum length of the fiber of the hay do you recommend as an effective fiber? Yeah, and, and I don't know enough about, I think you need to, that's something that probably Alex Bach can, or Trevor DeVries could answer you immediately. We've done both, you know, with like a, it's probably a three or four centimeter chop, um, like a one inch chop to a little bit longer. I would say that, you know, one of the things, again, practically speaking, if you give it, you know, let's say two or three centimeters, of grass hay and you chop it up, you waste less than if it's really long. So practically speaking, you know, that works. Okay. Uh, going back to housing, uh, which is the recommendation about the square meti uh, meters you need for uh, each calf? I think our pen, I mean, I that's going to vary by country. So I can't say for sure. I mean, what we've used, as you can see in the picture, I think that's one and a half by one and a half meters. Maybe that two that meters, is but... in individual housing? Yeah, so that's individual, and I would give twice that for, for two cats. But there's been not a lot of work done on that. I mean, what you want is, is um, I mean, what you saw in those pictures when we increase the size, we actually give the same amount of space per calf. We just give twice as much space and put two calves in there. 
Okay? Okay. I just see there's an invest. Steve Adam just said that Alex Boss said around one inch straw. It's also for sorting with pellets. I mean, so, I mean, that's one inch would, I guess, is two and a half centimeters works in terms of the length of the forage. We've had, like I said, we haven't, we actually use TMR a lot and it, the calves seem to really like it. Okay. Um... How do you limit, this is from Horacio, how do you limit the hay quantity the, uh, the calves uh, eat? You don't have to limit it because they're not going to eat a lot of it if they're given lots of milk. And that's the thing that people don't realize is that as soon as you, as soon as they're not hungry, they're not going to eat that much hay. They're just going to eat enough hay to become ruminants, to help them become a ruminant. You only, I mean, that's why historically only feeding, when we were feeding four liters or 10% body weight, people don't even, they, they run away when they hear that we feed hay because they said, well, the calves will just eat and eat and eat and get these really big hay bellies. The problem is, is that these calves are so hungry and the only thing that they, they eat then is the hay. So as soon as you feed higher volumes of milk, you don't have to worry about limiting hay anymore. Okay? Uh, okay. And uh, which is the minimum age you uh, do you uh, recommend feeding hay to the calves? We give hay starting in the first week of life. So by seven okay. days, these calves have access to hay. Paula, do you have any more questions? I I have two more, but I I don't understand you them. So oh, okay, I, you have I to have, translate. I need them. a couple of minutes. Yes, uh, this is from Herman. Uh, is there any association between stress level and milk uh, quantity in baby calves? So it depends on how you define stress. What we know is that calves that are fed lower volumes of milk do significantly more what we call unrewarded visits. So they are looking for milk all the time and not being and not getting milk. So I would argue that that is a distress response. Nina, could you have health problems if you feed a, a lot of milk in buckets? So don't, I will never, ever condone feeding milk in buckets <laughs> because I think the thing is with buckets, you also, I mean, Mike Van Amberg, I think it was Mike or somebody else showed that when you feed in buckets, you also increase the risk of ruminal drinking. So that's where the milk spills over Think, think about a calf when it's suckling from its mum. Its head is stretched forward and its head and its, and its nose actually comes up as it, as it grasps the nipple. I think that, that position helps with the esophageal groove, which, so the milk goes down and then it actually skips the rumen and the reticulum and goes straight into the omasum. If you stick the calf's head down, I think the esophageal groove struggles to do its job. And so you get this spilling of milk into the rumen. 
the one thing that I, I didn't mention earlier, but what's really important when you start feeding higher volumes of milk is the stool, the, the feces, is going to be looser because they've got more water in them, right? So loose feces doesn't necessarily mean that they have, that they're sick. And so you have to, the reason we're so used to feeding only 10% of body weight and what the feces look like are really dry and hard, and we think that's good. It actually tells us that these calves are, could be dehydrated. And just to bring that point home, we did some on-farm work where we went into hutches in the summertime, and this is Western Canada where it's not nearly as hot as it is in parts of Brazil. And calves did not have access to water, which is a huge welfare concern. Even feeding calves with high volumes of milk, they should have access to water. But these calves on restricted amounts of milk, they couldn't find a vein sometimes. So, which tells me that these calves are suffering from dehydration. Okay? Okay. Um, Paula, are you all set? Yes. I think so. <laughs> By now? Paula, thank you. Hopefully I answered all those. Yeah, no. This I, I think so. I, I Then I have to hear the whole recording because... I cannot write and translate and do everything at the same time. Yeah, I always I find I learn a lot more when I'm listening and editing. Yeah, and anybody that's still on, if you have any questions, just email me. I'm not hard to find on email. Right, and also um, Nina has said that she's willing to have the PDF sent out. So if yeah. anybody, um, and of course oh, the PDF perfect. won't come through with the video. So um, I actually might throw it up to, into Dropbox for you so that you can see the videos. Paula, thank you for being such a fantastic partner this last year. Mm -hmm. And Marcelo and Marcos, uh, Marcelo can hear us, but I think he's busy speaking in Portuguese. Um, I know that Marcos wants to thank um, Nina tonight for the presentation and um, also thank Paula and, and Marcelo and, and me, I guess, for the work with him. And um, Sylvia Baruki, as she's leaving, said, thank you, Nina, very useful and to the point. So um, <laughs> I think everybody really enjoyed this. I had, I'm at the Penn Nutrition Conference today, actually, and um, I think there's a bunch of people that are interested in listening to the recording because they just couldn't join today. Um, so yeah. we... We're really grateful for talking to oh, you. Oh no, my pleasure. My pleasure. I, I look forward to next um, next year, and hope and we have some really great um, speakers all lined up. But um, if you have any, um, it, it just really wonderful to work with you. Thanks very much. Okay, and thanks. for everybody else, I'm going to sign off, and you'll get the raw recording probably tomorrow or Friday, and the um, edited one's going to take a little while. So. Thanks okay. very much. Take care, everybody. Thank you. Bye. Bye.